Hello and welcome to the Hear Hear podcast. I'm your host, Karen Gordon. I'm an audiologist and senior scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, and a professor at the University of Toronto. Our goal with these discussions is to explore new ideas that may help people use devices like cochlear implants to hear. Transcripts of these discussions are available alongside the recordings. Okay, welcome to this edition of the Hear Here podcast. I am joined by my team members here, Blake Papson and Sharon Cushing. So welcome to you both. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Awesome. So I know we're really eager for listeners to hear from Dr. Lena Reese. She's a professor at Oregon Health and Science University. She has a severe to profound hearing loss. She's had it all of her life. And I think the listeners are going to get a treat because she discusses her research in hearing loss and how her experience as a person living with hearing loss shaped her journey, scientific and personal. She was so open about the challenges she faced as well as all the successes she's had. So Lena started her academic life at Princeton University where she studied mechanical engineering. And for what she says, there were few other students who um, were deaf and definitely very few women of color who were deaf there. So you're going to hear how um, she joined a community uh, by engaging with other students who were deaf, both oral and those who were part of a more capital D signing deaf community. She used listservs in the early days of the internet to do that. I think it reminds us how far we've come in terms of, you know, our capacity to connect with humans. It's much easier to make those kinds of connections these days. So it really speaks to her resilience and and desire to do it via a listserv. Welcome, Dr. Lena Reese. You were uh, an engineer undergraduate at Princeton. And then um, I want to know how you went from there to um, a scientific career in hearing research. Well, that's a pretty long story. I'll try to give you a short version. I always wanted to do science from a very young age. I should mention that I'm also hearing impaired, and I don't know if that's something that's going to be obvious to the listeners here. And so I grew up with that, hearing loss and hearing aids all my life. And um, so I went to college. I, uh, you know, had went from major to major, and I was not sure what I wanted to do. And um, I put joined the deaf list. It was my first time interacting with so many deaf people deaf and hard of hearing people because I grew up in the mainstream. And so it's very interesting for me. And But it was also an exposure to a different culture and they were very against oral deafness. How did that make you feel? Well, I thought it was very interesting to see those different perspectives. And one of them was Tilak Ratnanathar. He introduced himself. Tilak Ratnanathar. He's an associate research professor at Johns Hopkins University now, so they met all those years ago and both continued to do auditory work. And he invited me to do a summer internship at Johns Hopkins, and he arranged one for me with Dr. Eric Young in that lab. And that was the first exposure I had to any type of hearing research. 
And I absolutely loved it. I just loved the combination of biology with engineering, learning about hearing and speech perception and the auditory nerve. And it was so exciting. And so I went back again the next summer. And then I ended up applying for the PhD program in biomedical engineering there and working in uh, Eric Young's lab. As somebody with hearing loss, were you surprised um, that you didn't know everything there was to know about hearing already? That's kind of interesting. Nobody's asked me that question before. It's a big jump to want to do a PhD. So tell me a little bit about that part of the journey. Both of my parents had PhDs and... um, you know, originally I thought I would go work in industry like my father did at Bell Labs, back when Bell Labs was still alive. And um, so I thought, well, you know, this sounds like a good way to do it. You know, to do science, you probably need to get a PhD. So I found it really interesting that Lena always thought she would go into science. Uh, she, yeah, she says her parents... Um, were so supportive of her. They really put all the effort in that many parents do to help her acquire that language. And they are both academics themselves. And so it wasn't such a stretch for her to think that she would be um, in science as well. Half of our team is uh, people who have uh, some sort of hearing loss in their family or in family members. How else would you be exposed to hearing research unless you're exposed to it. For us to have researchers with that lived experience is just so important because um, they're, they're the ones who really know what questions to ask and uh, how to ask them maybe in a different way. You know, Blake, I, I'm sure it's reasonable for me to to mention, you know, that you do have hearing loss and, and wear hearing aids. Parents and families um, opt to go for implants far more regularly when I suggest it than than when you guys suggest it because they look at me and they see that I'm sort of normal. At least the children think that, the parents don't. Lena actually chose to begin her PhD studies in something that was very specific, studying, you know, the um, responses in the cochlear nucleus. Amazing. Okay. So then tell me how you decided on the area of interest um, that you wanted to study. Well, um, you know, through the summer internship, I, you know, really enjoyed working with Dr. Young and with his lab. And I was fascinated by the complexity of the auditory circuitry, even as a lover of the cochlear nucleus. Um, However, after doing that research for five, six years, even though the secretary was fascinating, I um, didn't see the immediate clinical relevance and I wanted more of a connection. What do I, what do I want to do for the next 30 years of my life? I already knew that with cochlear implants, there's always a difficulty with speech and noise. And that was the difficulty that I had, even with hearing aids, mainly with speech and noise. I ended up going to Iowa doing my postdoc with Chris Turner, working with him in subjects. I really enjoyed working with patients because I could connect with them with my hearing loss. One of her first experiences after her PhD was going to the University of Iowa, where they were studying the hybrid implant. Uh, And at the time, it was really new. 
Uh, it was a really interesting idea of implanting people with hearing loss, but who had some degree of residual hearing, mostly in the low frequency. And they were trying to do it safely by giving a shorter cochlear implant array. To explain the concept of the hybrid cochlear implant, it is a short version, well, it was a short version of the regular cochlear implant. And it was designed to be implanted atraumatically into just the high frequency region of the cochlea and therefore preserve the low frequency residual hearing if that was usable. And so it was targeted for people with high frequency hearing loss. However, if they didn't have good local nerve survivor in the high frequency region, they might not do well. So the goal was to measure the pitch perception through the implant by pitch matching the electrode-induced pitch with the acoustic hearing in the other ear. So initial experiments were interesting and promising, but then over time, the correlation got worse. That got us thinking that maybe experience and plasticity was changing the pitch should no longer reflect the actual location of stimulation. And so then we compared early pitch perception data and did find that there was a change over time. It, you know, it sounds like such a wonderful thing to do, right? Use what you got that works well and then supplement what isn't working. Her idea was that people who had better pitch matching in the high, you know, for high frequencies or high pitches uh, between the um, non-implanted ear and that implanted ear with the short electrode array, we're going to do better. What I found really interesting is that finding over time became weaker and weaker. She had to think about this negative result. What did it really mean when her hypothesis wasn't supported over time? We don't know the underlying etiology and what the pathophysiology is locally. And that's what makes some, but then again, it might just be cognitive ability. The codification of language and the codification of sound is a cognitive process. I mean, that is what what we learn is even if we're talking about pitch, which you would think starts in the cochlea, it's got to be a cochlear problem and you got to match it by cochlear matching. What the finding is telling us is that, well, the brain will and the person will adapt to make that pitch work. That's and, right. and that's what was happening here is that, you know, the implant wasn't moving around. It was the brain pulling um, information toward where it needed to be to make it fit. Right. None of it is natural. None of it is the way it was designed because the natural auditory system has an efferent system that actually fine tunes and searches the environment for what it wants to hear. thing that's really important that we've learned um, from your work is that just because we stimulate from one part of the cochlea doesn't mean we can necessarily predict um, what someone's going to actually hear. Uh, in terms of the pitch, I want to hear um, how you've taken those ideas of plasticity into what you're doing now. So uh, I've shifted over from uh studies of pitch plasticity. So we then started to look at those in people with what we call bimodal cochlear implants. So those are people who are using a cochlear implant, a regular cochlear implant in one ear with a hearing aid in the other. 
not in the same era like the hybrid. And we didn't find as much plasticity in those cases. We decided to start looking at, well, maybe there's something else different about binaural processing than within ear processing, and maybe there's greater tolerance for pitch mismatches that might arise across ears than within ears. And so those, so from there, we started looking at binaural fusion and binaural fusion tolerances for pitch or frequency differences across the ears. And done in those experiments, we found that people with hearing loss or with implants tended to have really broad tolerance for pitch differences across ears. Yeah, just to be clear, when you're talking about fusion, um, you're talking about the inability to tell that there's two different pitches. Is that what you mean? The combination of multiple stimuli into one. So for example, just looking at music, you can have two tones that are an octave apart and you hear one sound or one chord. But, um, you know, in the special case of people with hearing loss, you can be looking at people with different hearing devices or mismatches across the ears. And you can be presenting very different stimuli that are not at musical intervals. And they might be fusing them into one sound. There's a lot of variation among people with hearing loss. So some of them will be able to easily separate sounds and others will fuse everything together. We want to still have some segregation ability to separate different voices in a complex listening situation, in speech and noise situation. And we don't want to be fusing all those voices together. What we want is to be able to only fuse the matched stimuli together, the ones that should be paired together and then separate out the ones that shouldn't be um, matched together. I think one of the important findings has been that this abnormally broad fusion is associated with more difficulty in separating out voices and background noise. So we've been looking at fusion as where things match and they come together. But she's looking at matching where things are so fuzzy in each ear that they come together in too broad a way. It doesn't make any sense to me at all that the, the cochlear implant would be programmed in any way related to the one on the contralateral ear since they're going to, co- to, to, to cortical structures that subtend them that have different desires. So it always makes, I always said, why don't you do one with, with different, you know, speeds and frequencies and stuff like that. Why don't you just do different, um, you know, sampling rates in the two sides. That would make more sense to me than trying to match the two ears. All right. So I thought the next part of this uh, discussion with Lena was just so fascinating because she recently, and I mean, really recently became a bimodal user herself. She got a cochlear implant and she was really open about uh, that experience and how it happened. So let's get a little bit more personal um, in terms of your own experience. Well, that's a really long story as well. And um I try to abbreviate that. So um, I think most of you uh, who know me will know that I have a severe to profound hearing loss. And 
had been deaf from a very early age. And uh, I was one of those kids that was lucky to benefit from early intervention at a, uh, you know, a speech program, the Summer Speech School in New Jersey. And I, at the time, back in the 1970s, I, uh, at the time they didn't have um, behind-the-ear hearing aids. They had these hearing aids that were on the back. And so I had two of those, one for each ear. But luckily, uh, I learned to speak and listen, and I was enrolled in the mainstream, and then they developed the behind-the-ear hearing aids at that time. So, yes, for the last 40-plus years, I have been a bilateral hearing aid user, and I was happy to stay that way. And I felt like I was doing fine with one-on-one conversations, as long as in a quiet room or a small group conversation, you know, with lip reading, I would do fine. However, there were a few things that happened in the last two years that changed my mind. Flying back from a four-flight trip to Brazil and landing at the airport, I had trouble walking straight. And I felt like my vision was lagging my sense of balance, and it was very disorienting. It went away after a month. Then I flew again to the uh, ERO meeting in Baltimore. And then I was fine there, but then after flying back, landing in Seattle, I had trouble again walking in the airport. But this time it was in two dimensions, in the vertical and in the um, uh, horizontal dimension. And so my uh, husband or anybody with a low-pitched voice would be talking and the room would spin. Or I'd be walking outside and there'd be machines that I couldn't even hear with my hearing aids and I would get dizzy. Something related to flying, perhaps. So I went in for vestibular testing and got a CT scan. And, you know, I was still really freaked out because, you know, vestibular disorders are really nothing, really quite um, disruptive for those of you who have experienced them. So when the CT scan came back, the radiologist said, oh, she said, I think we may have found the cause of your hearing loss. You have something called enlarged vestibular aqueduct. So I uh, underwent about six months of vestibular rehabilitation and was able to recover vestibular functional balance, adapt to my reduced vestibular function. I was considering a cochlear implant by that time because, well, if I'm getting a sound-reduced vertigo from that bad ear, the left ear, well, a cochlear implant would be a good way around that. I wouldn't have to have a mechanical sound going amplified by the hearing aid going through the ear. Okay, so I found it really fascinating that uh, Lena talked about the etiology of her um, hearing loss being associated with her experience of getting off a plane and and having uh, those those feelings of dizziness and unsteadiness, uh, not able to walk. Um, maybe you can explain that for us a little bit more. Yeah, you know, when I hear a story like that, you know, it automatically makes you think of, you know, enlarged vestibular aqueduct or some kind of 
third, what we call third window, where in addition to the, you know, the oval window and the round window, you know, you have some other enlarged opening and in, in, in her, it, you know, it was an enlarged vestibular aqueduct and, and it creates a fragility in the ear, both from the hearing perspective, but also from the vestibular perspective. And so many individuals with this will experience acute onset vertigo um, at different periods, sometimes related to a decrease in hearing, but sometimes independent of it. And so we know that, you know, the pressurization during flight, while it's pretty good, you know, is a risk factor, head injuries, a risk factor. I never recommend that my patients with, with EVA don't fly or don't do sports or anything like that, but, um, you know, because it's idiosyncratic, but certainly um, that fragility uh, of the vestibular system is there. And, and it's the one form of hearing loss where they actually do get dizzy. In particular, EVA or, or children with CMB can present with acute onset of, of dizziness and then imbalance. A lot of other kids, they don't actually get dizzy, but they have really terrible, you know, balance skills. So they walk late, they have trouble riding a bike, and it's it's a pretty common and I think underreported or appreciated um, association with hearing loss. Yeah, and as you point out. The cause of the hearing loss, whether it's a change in the structure of the cochlea, including this enlarged vestibular aqueduct, um, or a viral infection like cytomegalovirus or CMV, um, this is a, something that many people who grew up with hearing loss, they may not even know what their, the reason or the etiology of the deafness is. And um, do you think we're changing that? now i think i think there's different ways to think about it so you know oftentimes you know as an implant surgeon i would say i don't really need to know um the solution is a hearing aid or an implant um, and that's the conversation we often have with families is that it's not going to change what we do but it is going to change what we know i've certainly walked in to a room you know a decade after the hearing diagnosis or the implants and given a diagnosis of etiology, and it means something. Um, you know, moms tend to blame themselves. They can lift that guilt. So I think there's value in the knowing. I think that, again, we're coming into an era of medicine and research where, you know, we're looking at specialized solutions where it's going to matter what your etiology is. So perhaps how we treat your hearing loss is going to depend on the knowing. And I think that's going to move things in a way that we haven't seen. I think it's also really important for what we're going to do for you going forward. So, you know, this idea that, you know, you could have one degree of hearing loss for most of your life, and then all of a sudden that it could change. I think that was so powerful in Lena's um, discussion is she just didn't know that was even a possibility. Um, so it makes me also think of the universal screening for CMV that we're doing here in our province that, you know, tries to address that part, at least for that, that particular etiology. Yeah, I, I think we're getting better at coupling both the hearing diagnosis and the etiology. We've got a ways to go, but I think, you know, gene therapy and things like that are also going to just move that diagnostic part along. Yeah, future is going to be really interesting. For sure. You start to see this deterioration in your left ear and, and with the vestibular effects, it started to make sense to see about a cochlear implant. 
So you got a cochlear implant in your left ear. I had seen the cochlear implant being done. And as and I've done this with animus, I just didn't like the idea of having my head drilled into. And so that was another reason why I was hesitant to get the implant. Even somebody who knew all about the devices and how they fit and was still nervous to, you know, have somebody use power tools in their uh, head besides all the important nerves. Can't imagine why. Just this morning I was in a meeting and I had really bad tinnitus in, in my bad ear. And I said, oh boy, please come back. Because I don't think I even would, you know, volunteer for that. I really don't want to. So I understand. It came back, by the way. We're sensitive to, you know, the, that decision to, to go towards surgery. Because it is, it is a big one. Um, and it, and it was a big one for Lena. Once I made the decision, you know, I was ready to go. And um, it, was, it actually ended up being scheduled for April. And that was right when the pandemic was getting into full, you know, first swing. And so they canceled the surgery because they said, oh, we have to reserve the hospitals for the patients. And then they reopened uh, partially in May. So I was able to get my implant just a month later. Still in the middle of the pandemic. So they had masks and I brought clear masks for my surgeon and the nurses so they could understand them. And that helped a lot. You know, I just went to sleep and woke up and I said, what happened? Oh, they did the surgery. What kinds of things do you think you expected and, um, you know, met your expectations? And what were the things that you were new and you didn't expect? So every experience is different and individual. And one thing that was very surprising for me early on, and I had never heard it before from our patients, was that perhaps because I've been deaf for a long time, the highest frequency electrode, they didn't sound like sound. They sounded like the absence of sound. Kind of like when you look at a light, bright light for too long, and then you get that after image. That's what it sounded like, the after image. Something maybe the brain had not been stimulated in that region for a long time. And then it changed over time. And later on, became more noise-like, which I also was not expecting. So my apical electrodes sound like tones and beats, but my basal electrodes sound like ch-ch, not like tones. So I don't know if I understood speech as quickly as other people did. So you probably know that the post-lingually deaf people, when they get the implant, they get a large improvement in the first few months. And for me, it probably took more like six to nine months. But then over time, and I did some speech rehab as well. And over time, I gradually started to recognize the voices. It sounded very robotic and mechanical and noise-like in the beginning. And then now they sound, voices sound like voices. incredible lived experience I think it's been about a year now that she has um, been using an implant and she's really happy with it she's definitely combining that hearing aid in one ear and the implant in the other she shared that it was really 
wonderful to be able to share these experiences with the people she works with and, and to also help them understand how best to communicate with her. When you're trying to do a very challenging job at directing a, a laboratory and being a primary investigator and doing research, um, I want to hear about how, how you manage everything together. So, you know, I never thought I would be a director of a laboratory when I was, uh, you know, growing up. But Peter Steiger was the first person that I met who was deaf and was a professor. So maybe I can be a professor. <laughs> well, you definitely are. And you're such a well-known, wonderful researcher. How does your lab work? I just ended up, you know, picking the best qualified people, but, you know, they did have to, you know, either speak clearly or learn how to speak up and speak clearly. So thinking some more about in the lab, the hearing loss was not the only aspect. It was also learning how to lead the lab as a woman with the right balance and temperament. And what ended up working best for me was not leading the way that my male mentors did, but observing and channeling successful women PIs in the field, like Carolyn Brown, who I met when I was a postdoc at the University of Iowa, and Ruth Litovsky, who I met later on and uh, collaborated with on our grant, and observing their leadership styles and how they mentored their students. I really want to thank you for sharing your experiences as a, a wonderful researcher and also your personal experiences with cochlear implants. Um, it's just been so much fun to learn from you on this podcast. So thanks so much for doing it, Lena. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, Karen. Thank you for inviting me. I was um, really, really happy to uh, have had this discussion with Lena. And thanks to you both for getting into some of the interesting parts of that discussion. It's, it's amazing to hear, you know, about her also from behind the scenes. It uh, makes me respect her work all the more. You can catch other episodes of the Hear Hear podcast. There's a link on our website. Search Archie's Cochlear Implant Lab, SickKids Research Institute, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hear Hear podcast is put together by me, Dr. Karen Gordon, with my colleagues at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, Drs. Blake Papson and Sharon Cushing, with a tremendous production and advisory team, Sophia Olazola, Rachel Better, and Maria Kahn. Our wonderful Hear Hear podcast music was composed and performed by Dr. Blake Papson.